You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Before we begin in the message today, I want to say thank you. Uh, just a huge thank you, first of all, on behalf of uh, the ministry staff for your generous gift to us uh, this Christmas season. You really were a blessing to us, to our families. We say thank you. I want to thank you as well. Just uh, and together, we as a congregation really rose uh, to um, the challenge of our end-of-year giving that we've kind of put out there, and uh, we've almost met all of those goals. And so God has provided in really huge ways. We made a huge dent on our uh, mortgage payment on uh, our For the City uh, campus down on the south side of town and um, took care of uh, all of the, the, the media ministry that will come up this year and, and put us in the good for where we are with our budget. And so thanks so much for just being faithful uh, to uh, what the Lord has blessed you with, uh, that you also believe in the ministry of Century Baptist. And this morning, I just want to show you through a video uh, one of the ways in which your giving contributes. Uh, we have a lot of ministries that happen here at Century, seven days a week, and God is up to great things. And uh, one of the events that takes place on a regular basis here at church uh, is one of my favorites. It's called Embrace. And um, years ago, we would do kind of a traditional child dedication on a Sunday morning where we would have parents come up and, and we would introduce children and we would pray over them and we as a congregation would affirm that we will stand alongside parents uh, to, uh, to help raise and disciple their children. And um, uh, Melanie, who oversees our preschool ministry, just is the best there is. Uh, she's phenomenal at what she does. And uh, the one thing I love about her is she says, we don't do child care. No matter what age we have, we do not do child care. We disciple children. And I love that. And so uh, she took kind of child dedication to uh, the next level. And so we have this event that takes place on a regular basis on a, a Saturday morning where we invite uh, parents and their newborns and uh, their relatives and family members, whoever wants to join them, as well as uh, staff from Century and representatives from the church to just come and stand alongside families to say we are all a part of embracing this role that we have of discipling kids. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful event that we spend time, we have breakfast together, uh, and uh, the big piece is that uh, the parents come prepared and have written a blessing for their child, and it's read over them as a family. They pray. And the cool thing is that it's sandwiched with 18 years later uh, upon graduation from high school. Our high school uh, does the same thing, celebrates graduation with parents writing a blessing and, and kind of a looking back on the years. And uh, this, is, this is our year, our, la our last graduate, our daughter graduates, and then we're empty nesters, and we're not old enough, so we'll, we're taking children. Uh, into our home, at least. But um, we, we, it's, I, I don't even like to think about it. It's going to break my heart. Did I say something that was inappropriate? Oh, my wife says, no, thank you. So, um, uh, so uh, anyhow, so uh, here at Century, I love our Next Gen Ministries, care so deeply about raising up children, but not just, it's, it's not about, hey, mate, if you bring your kids here, they're, we're going to, we're going to, uh, disciple them. It's we want to come alongside you as families, uh, as you as the number one influence in your child's life as a parent. 
so that we can come along and support you and, um, and hold you up as you raise your kids. And so the Embrace event is all about that. It's about letting people know that the church is behind you. It's about letting people know that you are the number one influence in your life and raising your children is not a burden. It is something to grab a hold of and embrace. And so we always like to show you the highlights of that morning. And so this is our latest Embrace event. Father, thank you for this time that we have, that we get to open up your word that you've given to us to know more about you and about ourselves, how the two go together. 
We pray, Father, this morning that, that our, our minds would be open to what it is that you are saying to us, not because of words that I say, but because of what you are up to. So show us the truth through your word on how we can live and this continual reminder that, that Jesus, you are king. We want to live into that each and every day. So grow us now in this moment. In your name, amen. In, um, in the early 80s, uh, the video arcade was everything. Uh, having a high score on a video game was, man, that was it. To be able to put your initials in uh, to, uh, to Pac-Man or Galaga, whatever it was. Well, there's a story that uh, in 1983, there was a woman in North Carolina uh, who had become a master of a game that was called Tapper. And, and uh, basically, it was, if it was in a kid's arcade, it was called Root Beer Tapper. And it was a, it was a guy that was sending down these mugs, and you had to catch them and, and drink them. And, uh, and, and she was on a roll 14 hours into one game, one quarter. 14 hours in, she was at about 7 million points, and nobody had ever hit 10 million. And she said, I think I'm going to do it. So she told her boyfriend, she said, Here's what, I need you to call all the news stations. Uh, because at the time, people cared about video games, right? And so, uh, so he calls the news stations, and they show up uh, in mass, and the crowd started to form around this restaurant that she was in, and the cameras started coming in, and the lights started coming in, and they started battling for electricity, and so sure enough, somebody needed to plug in one of their cameras, and so they unplugged Tapper. <laughs> she lost it all. The effort to make herself known ended up being her demise. There's something to be said in there uh, about the truth of pride and pride uh, coming before the fall. Uh, we are going to take a look at Matthew chapter 12 today, verses 9 through 14. It's, uh, it's a different narrative. There's different actions that are taking place, but it's really ultimately the same essence as last week's text, as Jesus is walking through the field, the grain fields with his disciples. On the Sabbath, they reach out and grab a handful to eat, which is permitted uh, by God's law, but uh, according to uh, the oral tradition and man's law, the Pharisees lose their minds and they go after Jesus. How dare your disciples work on the Sabbath? And where we landed last week was Jesus saying, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, I'm the one that says what goes or doesn't go. Uh, and the Sabbath is given to you so that you can relax, that you can rest, that you can trust in God. So why don't you guys give it a rest? Stop running around and, and, and checking boxes to make sure everybody's following your traditions and your rules when they really ultimately, you don't even know the meaning behind it. So that leads to today's text where uh, they were walking through the grain fields on their way to the synagogue that leads us now to Jesus' next interaction with uh, with these religious leaders if you would let's stand together well, uh, let me read this to you so uh, jesus went on from there verse 9 chapter 12 uh, and entered into their synagogue and a man was there with a the withered hand and they asked him in other words the, the leaders the, the religious leaders asked jesus is it lawful to heal on the sabbath so that they could accuse him and he said to them, which one of you as a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. His hand was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how they might destroy him. You can have a seat. It's been said that at the root of pride, which we know pride is sin, the building up of ourselves, but we know that at the root of it really, as studies have been done on, is low self-esteem, a poor view of one's own self. It seems odd, doesn't it, that, that pride that flows out of people and, and, and egotism that flows out of people is really coming out of those who, who ultimately, when they're alone in a room, don't think very highly of themselves. And pride starts to flow out of, well, if I can't be number one, if I uh, can't show myself important, then I'm not going to let anybody else. And so I'm just going to criticize and hold other people down. And I'm going to be the Debbie Downer on their lives so that I can at least make myself look better than I actually am. And we put on a front. We refuse to be vulnerable. We spend our time pride just really points out the faults of others and that's what we find in this text so I'm, i want to take a little bit of a different perspective on this text today to look at the pride of these religious leaders and then for us to ask ourselves so do i truly believe that jesus is king that he is lord and is there something in this that this text that maybe shines a little light on some of the dark parts of my heart because when we let pride start to rule in our life, the first thing that we, we know this, but we also see it in this text, is that people get used. And people get abused by the prideful. A little bit of backstory, if you um, um, remember this, as we've been, we've been talking about this for a number of, of weeks, but um, if you were to read through all four Gospels, what you're going to get, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to get a different perspective on a lot of the same events that are taking place in Jesus' life. It all just depends on the audience of who the author is writing to, who the message is intended for. And so some Gospels withhold some of the events, some uh, add a little bit to it with a little more detail. Today's text uh, takes place um, in a, an episode that Matthew doesn't mention, but John does in John chapter 5. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he's there among the people, and there's a man there who is paralyzed. Uh, and, and there's a, a, a fountain, it's the pool of Bethesda, that, that kind of bubbles every day. And it was this belief that if you just would touch the water, the first person to the water would be healed. And uh, this man is never able to get to the pool because... He can't walk. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Take up your mat and walk. And so the man does. Well, the religious leaders see this taking place and they are furious at the man for picking up his mat on the Sabbath and carrying it. That's work. That's labor. They freak out. They lose their mind. They're angry about it. And so... Word had spread, maybe some of the same leaders, we don't know, but word had spread now back to Galilee. And here Jesus is back in Galilee on the Sabbath, and they, they, they're angry at Jesus. So they're going to they're gonna get him. We're going to pin him on this one. Because not only did he heal a man 
uh, on the Sabbath back in Jerusalem, but at the end of it, Jesus made the proclamation that, that He and God were one, that He was the Son of God, that all of that He did came from the Father. And in the eyes of the blind religious who were unwilling to see the truth in front of them, uh, they, they were calling out heresy against Jesus. So here's, our, here's another opportunity. Now we can get Him. Let's get Him to heal on the Sabbath. Let, let's ask Him about these questions. Let's get Him to give some false teachings. And so here they come into the synagogue, a place where they're supposed to come and to worship and to grow into understanding of the Word. But, but they're the pious, the elite of the day. They don't need to learn anymore. So they kind of sit along the sidelines. And Matthew tells us the reason that they're there is really to watch and see if he's going to do anything about this man uh, with the withered hand. Mark 3 and Luke 6 are parallel passages. They also give some insight from different perspectives on this exact instant. Uh, and, and Luke tells us that it was the, right, the man's right hand. That's a big deal. He points that out. Every word that we're given to in Scripture, we should look at it and go, why would it be there? And the reason that, that it says that it's the right hand, and our culture isn't so much uh, into this, but there are a lot of cultures around the world where the right hand is the strong hand and the left hand is the weak hand. You don't do anything with your left hand. I've been to, to countries around the world that you, would, you wouldn't dare give a gift to somebody with your left hand. That's, that would be like, I'm, I'm giving this to you, but I don't like you. It's an insult. And so you do everything with the right hand. It's uh, the strong hand. And so we read into that. Luke is saying, look, this man's, this man's life is at stake. His life is in danger. He's probably not able to work. It's his right hand. Something has gone wrong with it. Now, there are extra biblical um, um, writers that speak into this. One ancient historian gives a small perspective that this man may have been a stonecutter, that maybe his hand got crushed in an accident. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, but he, his hand is no lights paralyzed, is really the... the um, the term that would be used in the original language. It's just not able to be used any longer. It wasn't that he was born that way, but it had become weak and not usable, and now uh, he was without any use of his hand. And Luke says, so they watched to see if Jesus would heal him so they could have a reason to accuse him. But Luke says, but Jesus even knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. So the question get asked of him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If you read this narrative in Mark, it says that Jesus was angry and he grieved their hardness of hearts. He knew what was going on in their minds. You're here in the house of the Lord, a day where we come to worship and spend time together, and there is somebody in your midst that has a great need, there's someone here that, that can't work any longer and needs to be healed and taken care of and all you care about is what I'm doing wrong? That's, that's what you care about, of trapping me, of getting me to do something. You don't even want me to heal him. You want me to heal him, but not so that the man could have life. You want me to heal him so that you could kill me. Proverbs 21, 3 and 4 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. We talked about that uh, last week. Jesus' words. Haughty eyes and a proud heart are the lamp of the wicked. They are sin. Pride is 
wrong. When we're called to be humble, we're called to do the right thing, we're called to be those that love others really, really well. Here's the Savior of the world right in their midst. They, they had heard about His miracles. right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I would get word that somewhere, some place, some church in town, there's going to be someone that everywhere He goes that lame people pick up their mats and they walk. Blind people see again. The mute, never been able to speak their entire lives are now speaking. I would be there in a heartbeat. I I, want to see who in the world uh, has this kind of power that God would work through them to do this. Here Jesus is right in front of them. And and all they want to do is put an end to His life. They'd come to the synagogue, a house of worship. A place where we're supposed to build community. a, A place to grow. And they came with their pride at the forefront. Ignoring this person, or actually, they didn't ignore him. They watched him to see if Jesus would do anything, but they were using him to get to Jesus. Instead of hands open in worship, their fists were clenched in anger and fury. Matthew ten sixteen, when Jesus, early on in their ministry, sends Jesus out to do his work, to do ministry, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents, but be innocent as doves. But I I love that Jesus said, I'm sending you out into the world. Here's what I want you to do. He doesn't say, I want you to get, I want you to be a wolf, get ravenous. I want you to attack all that's going on out there. Go after all the darkness and and the sin, and I want you to rip the culture apart. Tell them how wrong they are. No, what does he say? I'm sending you out as sheep. Among wolves, gentle, loving. Be wise, do the right thing, but don't be wolves. Be sheep. Just this section alone can allow us to kind of pause and just take a a look at our own souls and attitudes. Maybe just in even coming together as a community and approaching worship. Does, Does your worship... How you worship, does it depend upon what everybody else is doing around you? Who's present among you? What the guy up front is saying, well, do I agree with him or do I not agree with him? Was it a, was it a good message or was it not a good? It, that determines whether or not we're, gonna, we're going to, to worship. Were the people around you distracting? Are the people around you like you? Every little thing has a potential based on our perspective, our attitude, what's going on in our soul and our hearts. To either draw us closer and recognize Jesus at work or draw us away from Him. Pride causes us to use people for our own self-worth. Jesus says, be humble. Follow me. And if pride starts to rule in our life, we need to understand that we learn from Jesus that mercy is always necessary. We start to see pride rise up in the lives of other people. We are supposed to be merciful. Not just cast them away, but how do I love them back to showing them who Jesus is so that Jesus can take care of their, their pride and they can humble themselves before, before Him. But also for myself. So, They're looking for Jesus to 
to heal the man so that they can go after him. He says, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath would not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, we talked a lot about this last week, and uh, I love looking deep into uh, ancient Jewish teachings and tradition and culture. We talked last week about during those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament that a lot of rabbinic teaching, the teaching of the sages and the philosophers started to rise up. And they, since they didn't hear from God, they took it upon themselves to argue over every law that they found in uh, the Torah in the, the early part of the Old Testament. What did God mean when he said this? And what did God mean when he said this? And Jesus spends his entire ministry when he's talking to the Pharisees, basically saying, you, you got it wrong, right? You, you overanalyzed way more than you were supposed to about this. And by the time Jesus shows up in, uh, on the scene and what he's teaching, he's having to undo really the teachings of two major rabbis that schools of thought that people had bought into, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi uh, Shammai. Shammai was really, really, really strict, and Hillel was a little more uh, lenient in a lot of ways. And by the time Jesus shows up, uh, most of the people had, had said, we are going to side with uh, the teachings of Hillel, which was the oral tradition, oral law, based on God's law. It wasn't law. It was rules, man-made rules that they said, we think that this is the best way to honor uh, God's law. We talked about it last week. 39 categories on just how to observe the Sabbath alone. We talk a lot about how um, uh, the internet, uh, your phone, your phone's always listening. People are like, I don't believe you. Uh, I, uh, this week, was just scrolling through some stuff, and for some reason, uh, I started getting these, this feed on uh, modern-day uh, Hasidic Jewish culture and traditions, right? And so either it's the Holy Spirit saying, you need this for Sunday morning, uh, or, you know, the Internet, uh, Big Brother's watching, right? And so it was, it was it, there was a teaching on there. It was really fascinating on, um, as we talked about last week, there in those 39 categories of the Sabbath, one of them was about kindling a fire. Well, that's transformed into modern day, and, and uh, there is a, a modern day rabbi who said that that should apply then to using any electronics, that you shouldn't use any electronics on the Sabbath. And so the, it, it, were, it was this, this teacher who's standing in the hallway of a hotel saying that on Shabbat, on Sabbath, that uh, they turn off the, the key card entrances into hotel rooms, and then you have to use uh, a manual key, but that's also work. And so they, they, they sew, either sew keys into their sleeves um, because carrying keys on the Sabbath is wrong, or what most hotels do uh, in modern-day Israel is they either put a security guard at the end of every hallway and then everybody leaves their doors open, uh, or that security guard has the keys to let you into your room if you want to. Now, we might think that that is strange, but, but that's dedication to what they believe is the law. Like, this is what God wants from us, and we're going to try to honor it. But Jesus came and said, look, I've come to, to, to give your burden a rest. All of these rules, all these things that, that people have told you that you have to live by, that's not the point. Remember, we talked about that last week. Jesus said, I've come that you might have rest, that your yoke would be easy, that your burden would be lifted. You don't have to think about all these things because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists to point to me that when you see me, you know that you would find your rest in me. 
that I give you everything that you need, that I fully provide for you. It's not about following all of these rules. It's about following me. Let me give you what it is that you so desperately need. But in all of that, in all of these long list of rules that they had, the one thing that Rabbi Hillel landed on was here, here are the thousands of rules that you need to live by. But in the end, if there's a decision that needs to be made about whether or not you're going to break a rule or not, the only thing that allows you to break one of these rules that we're giving you is when you're going to save a life. If you, if you have to, to save somebody's life, then by all means. So they had one, uh, one of their rules, a man-made law, was that you cannot administer medicine to somebody if they had a sore throat. And, and, and you can't measure about how bad the pain is, but if it's going to save a life, then you can. But who knows if it's going to save their life or not. So what you should do in order to not break the rule is give the medicine to the person and you take it yourself. That's not considered work. And in doing so, just show mercy. Mark tells us that Jesus asked the question, so so is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? In other words, how do you measure it? What do you guys say? Are Are we supposed to just always follow the rule of law or is there room for showing mercy? and compassion, to do good to others even on the Sabbath? Because the answer is absolutely, it's yes. Now Mark tells us that they refuse to answer because they're looking to get Jesus. and They don't want it to give Him that answer. So Jesus says, if you have a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, you'd pull that out, wouldn't you? Because that's actually God's law in Exodus 25. God actually said if... Even if you come across one of your enemy's donkeys and it's laying on its back and it's trapped because of all the things that are strapped on, then it's your duty. Even if it's your enemy's, that's a life. Save it. Take care of that donkey. And so, so it, it even continued to say, so, okay, so even on the Sabbath, we should do that. However, they even came up with rules for that. The rabbis got together and said, we should, yes, we should absolutely save somebody's animal if they're in trouble. If they fall into a pit, what do you do? And it was, well, you can't construct a ramp because that's a lot of work. And so you can't do work on the Sabbath. So get everybody to go home and get your blankets and your pillows and you bring those and you throw them in the pit until you make a, a, a nice a little pile that the, the sheep can jump up on it and can jump out on his own. For then you haven't done uh, any work. And Jesus says, look, you've gone through all this to say, here's what you can and cannot do, but you should always save a life. Would you not save the life of a sheep? And the answer is absolutely. And so Jesus says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? God's created all things. That's uh, totally true. What sets mankind apart from animals is that it's only mankind that God can dwell within. That's what gives us our value. God made us. He created us. We're made in His image, and we are the only ones that He can dwell within, that He can do His work and His purpose through. So Jesus says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Save a life. Show mercy. And any opportunity that you have, to show mercy. 
It's one of the things that I loved about Pastor Dave Gallagher as our care pastor. Is that, you know, as a church, oftentimes we can, we can just kind of have a revolving door. There are seasons, especially during the kind of the oil boom a number of years ago, seasons where a lot of people were coming in and everybody had a story about coming and getting here to Bismarck but not having a place to live or not having the fuel to get where they need to go. And, and we, we just don't know. There's so many people that come in. We don't know what's true and what's not true. We feel we get burned all the time. You get a little bit hard-hearted toward people all of a sudden and you start to, to kind of think poorly about everybody that's got a story. And, and Pastor Dave would always say, how about we just err on the side of mercy? How about, how about if we're going to have a fault, let's have a fault by loving people really, really well um, rather than sending them away because there's lives at stake. We don't know necessarily about whether this man's life was in danger, that, that Jesus would be, according to uh, the religious leaders, allowed uh, to heal this man. For Jesus, it wasn't work. <laughs> Right? He just spoke, and the man was healed. It was no effort whatsoever because it just, it's just who he is. Love is not work. Mercy is not work. Compassion is not work, but it didn't matter anyway. Jesus says, you guys have it all wrong because even your law says that if it's to save a life, and this man uh, with a withered hand, his right hand is not able to work, not able to feed his family, Absolutely. I'll show compassion at all times. And I'll give him what he needs. Because it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, every day is a good day to do the right thing. To love people really, really well. They got stuck in their, their analyzing. They were paralyzed by it. It's the issue that so many had as they went up against Jesus is They'd analyze and study their laws so deeply they didn't even know what was right or what was wrong uh, anymore. As we talked about last week, it more or less became ritual and tradition, which happens to us so often. We don't know why we do it, but we do it because it's just been done before. And we, we don't go back to the Word and go, is this actually what Jesus calls me to do? Is this actually the life that He wants for me? But they've overanalyzed well beyond God's plan for what the Sabbath is all about. Ultimately, all of the laws that God gives, He tells us, were to point people to who Jesus was. When He would show up, they would go, oh, this is what this has all been about. But now that He was there, they were so engulfed in their own doctrine, in their own authority, in their own pride, that they refused to see Him for who He was. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. I love that 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 it comes before all of this talk about the Sabbath. But prior to that, Jesus said, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." That's what Sabbath is: resting in Jesus. We know we all need it. We all need. We need to take a break. Jesus didn't come to say you don't need to recognize the sabbath anymore we know we need it we physically we need it emotionally we need it our lives need time to take rest we also need to stop and pause and know that it, it also uh, taking a sabbath break helps with our pride because it it reminds us that the world goes on without us having to put any action into it we're, in other words we're not in charge we're not keeping the world spinning god still operates and nothing falls apart 
when we take a nap, when we take a day and reflect on all that God has done in our lives. And Jesus says, every day is a good day to do good for others. The perfect way to kill pride in your life is to do good. It's to lay down our life for others. That's what Jesus did. It's the example that He set. Our assumptions, our presuppositions, our egos, our opinions, our traditions, even the times in the past where maybe we have been burned. How valuable are people to you? Do we actually see human beings behind actions and activity? We truly accept that that Christ came and in His great mercy, mercy is the key word, he loved us. It's found in Titus uh, chapter 3. I-, I love this. Paul writes to Titus and he says, remind, remind your people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, this is the instruction to the church. Be kind-hearted. Care about the lost. Care about the people around you. Don't use them. And he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, and we were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to our various passions and our pleasures, and passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and hating each other. But when the goodness and the loving kindness or the mercy of God, our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the saying is true. Insist on these things, so that those who believed in God would be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. Jesus says, spend your time on the good stuff, the stuff that matters. Invest in the people's lives. Because remember, you might look at somebody and go, oh man, right? They're all that they're just withered hands. They're of no value value to me other than of what I can get out of them. And and Paul writes and says, Look, you were once that way. You were once an outcast by your own decision. You ran from God. Uh, People should have hated you. Some people did. And you were running away from me. But I, in my great mercy, God says, I rescued you and I saved you. So you, as a follower of me now, that's your role. Stop with the negative against other people and show mercy and show love. Extend Christ to others because it's always a great opportunity. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. When, when the man did it, it was fully restored. But the Pharisees get angry and they go out and they make a plan on how they're, they're going to kill Jesus. I mean, what, what a bucket of cold water on an incredible story. Man's hand was restored right in front of everybody. I imagine everybody else in the room was like, what in the world? Probably cheers and 
hands up in worship and praising God for what they're seeing. And these guys go storming out the door, you know, kicking the dirt, cursing Jesus out. Oh, we got to figure out how, how we get rid of this guy, how we kill him. Why? Because he's going to override our authority. And people are already following him and not following us. Jesus had a choice to make. I mean, ultimately, in the end, uh, Jesus would be put on the cross, yes, because he laid his life down for us, but it would come at the hands of those that he had made angry. He could have towed the line, you know, like, I'll, hey, man, take the guy with the paralyzed hand and go, hey, meet me out back after church. I want to talk to you about something. I want to do something. But he didn't. Right there in front of everybody. He chose mercy over tradition and ritual, expectations of other people, what people might say about him, because he valued people. Makes me think of the story of Jonah. Uh, we love that. I mean, we look at it in Sunday school. We're kids all the time. Just a powerful story. God tells Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to speak to the people of Nineveh because they're living in sin and my judgment is going to come down upon them. It has to. So you go and tell them to repent and I'll forgive them. And Jonah's like, well, I don't, I don't want them to repent. I want you to crush them. So I'm not going. So he jumps on a boat, escapes. You know what happens. Storm rages. Jonah knows that the storm is there because of him. And so they throw him overboard. A fish, giant fish, swallows him. He's in the belly of the whale for three days. Gets spit up. And he's like, okay, uh, learn my lesson. I'll go tell the people of Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh, tells them to repent. And they do. Great news. That's usually when Sunday school ends and we leave. But the end of Jonah is heartbreaking. Says that, it says that after Jonah is done, he goes up on a hill that overlooks Nineveh and he sits and waits. Almost like, I, this is going to be a great show. Watch the fire from heaven come down and watch God destroy all of this. Because these people deserve it. What happens is God forgives. Right? He's merciful. And, and he tells Jonah, he says, there are 125,000 people down there and all of their cattle. And I'm going to spare them all. And Jonah says, well then God, kill me now. Because I don't want to live to see that. I'm so angry. That's what he says. I'm so angry that I would rather die in my anger than to see their lives spared. And God just says, well I'm going to show mercy. And that's how the book of Jonah ends. God showing mercy to people that Maybe didn't deserve it. And at the same time, mercy to somebody who was just absolutely furious and angry. And that's the point of our text today. Our role is to submit to Jesus' role as the King in our lives, the Savior of the world. Whatever He says, goes. It's right. Allow ourselves to be humble. Humbled, first of all, that Christ would give up His life for us. And then to walk in that humility and to show mercy to others and that we rest in Jesus. It's a great lesson on discipleship, how to disciple that we find in this text. Oftentimes we, we fall in this mindset. We think that discipling means, well, my job is just to discipline. I just got to make sure I tell everybody what they're doing, doing wrong. That's part of discipleship. But as we have learned in following Jesus, what discipleship truly means is I'm going to walk and set an example for you to follow. 
I'll teach you as we live this life uh, together. But so often we think that discipleship is you just accept Christ and, and then now go live your life and try to live your life what the Bible says and I'll make sure to show up and tell you what you're doing wrong when the time comes. It's not what discipleship is. Jesus sets the better example. He gets involved in people's lives. He touches those who nobody else is willing to touch. He gets involved in the life of the people that other people are using for their own need. Pride is all talk. Jesus showed us that humility is getting your hands dirty, washing feet, caring for people, and not caring about what other people think. And Jesus rules instead of the false rules and instead of pride. Our role is to be imitators of Christ. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for Your Word. May it, may it dwell richly within us. Not the words that I've said today, but Your Word, the Scriptures. May it just pierce into our heart. May it go with us that we don't forget it today, Father, but we let it uh, seep uh, into our lives and then steep throughout the week to say, Jesus, use me, that I could become more like You. Help me to show mercy more than anything else. Help me to rest in You. Help me to follow You instead of rules. Jesus, thank You as well for grace. God, we, we don't get this right every day, every moment. But You continue to walk us through it. We trust You in it. We love You. Thank you for life and life abundant. Amen.